independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. It's an equalizer when you realize that we're all humans, we're all experiencing climate change in very different ways, and we're all in this together and we need to be finding solutions together. How does competition for power, economic status, and technological advancement between countries impact our ability to work together internationally on climate action? What does 422 parts per million mean, and how can we meaningfully lower our greenhouse gases through nature-based solutions? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons and sponsor Buffy, which makes betting that's earth-friendly and cruelty-free. Its news comforters called The Breeze made 100% from eucalyptus fiber to regulate temperature and keep us cool and comfortable all night long. I'll share more with you shortly along with a discount code, but for now, to our conversation with Shaila Rakov, who's attended almost a decade of United Nations climate change negotiations and international conferences, and who currently serves as the Global Climate Change Strategy Lead for Conservation International. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Probably sounds really cheesy, but I got really interested in environmental issues after watching the movie Fern Gully when I was a little kid. And it was really, it was an animated movie that was about a forest dwelling fairy that is affected by rampant deforestation. And that just really affected me when I was a child. And I started to explore a little bit more about understanding what I could do in my community. And I started recycling drives. When I was in high school and college, I started a green campus program, an educational awareness program for students to take the stairs more, to um, retrofit and change out their light bulbs, and to purchase more sustainable products. And that kind of set me down the path of also pursuing a career that was related to sustainability and environmentalism. I'm originally from India, so I have always grown up and grown around kind of experiencing the dual challenges of development and poverty and the environment. And what really interested me about working on climate change was that intersection between the two, because you can't address one without the other. Climate change is so fundamentally linked to our lifestyle, to our quality of life, and to our our future, um, to the future of our planet and the future of development, that it really seemed like a good fit for me to dedicate my career to addressing what I really think is the the challenge of our generation. So is the challenge kind of seeing how a lot of our current modes of development are drivers of climate change and how we can balance those two things? 
Absolutely. So I think there's there's a couple dimensions of it. One is that they're so linked together that in our pursuit for development and advancement, we're, we're causing climate change, but also this recognition of the fact that if we want to solve climate change, a lot of the solutions or, or a, a lot of the hope and the inspiration comes from things that can actually help us advance even faster. So by transitioning to lower carbon sources of energy, we're also solving pollution issues. By stopping deforestation, we're increasing the preservation of biodiversity and critical species. We're helping um, local communities and indigenous people sustain their ways of life. So kind of I, I, what really interests me is both of those dimensions, like seeing how one is a driver of the other, but also how the solution to climate change also helps us to, to correct inequality issues of imbalance across society. So it's been a while since you've been working on this for a really long time, ever since you were little, it sounds like. What did your professional path look like that led you to Conservation International? So when I was in graduate school, I had the opportunity to go to my first uh, climate COP. So the COP stands for the Conference of the Parties. And these are basically the annual international negotiations where countries come together and are talking about the future of a global global environmentalism. And the Kyoto Protocol, which was really the primary mode of international cooperation on climate change, was negotiated under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, and the most recent Paris Agreement was as well. So I started going to those negotiations about 12 years ago when I was in, in graduate school. And I was just really interested in the fact that Every country had an equal voice in those conversations. So the United States, China, or even a country like the Maldives, each of them had an equal footing and had the opportunity to voice their concerns and their issues and and really aim at getting a truly global universal agreement. I think the most interesting part for me was the opportunity to work with the Maldives. And you may have seen that the Maldives has really been a champion for acting on climate change simply because the average elevation above sea level in the Maldives is about one meter. So with all of the sea level rise and all of the intense intensity in the storms that we're experiencing, it's actually very plausible and very likely that the entire nation of the Maldives will be gone by the middle of the century. And so by working with the Maldives, I really got to understand that climate change isn't an issue of luxury or convenience. It's really an issue of survival and it's, it's existential. It's fundamental fundamentally changing the fabric of our society. And the issues that we're dealing with today are issues that we've never had to deal with before. Would you say that most people who live in the Maldives, do most people feel the sense of urgency because it's literally there right now? So there's no question of whether this issue exists. They feel it. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the interesting part about the international discussions as well, is that when, when you go to these meetings, we're, we're not really even debating whether or not climate change is real. We're actually starting from that point of, yeah, we already know this is a problem. We need to come together and find a solution. And I think that's why a lot of these international discussions are so important, because it gives you so much insight 
into how different countries and different uh, backgrounds and different contexts are experiencing climate change in very different ways. But I think it also helps to unify because I don't think there's any person on this planet that isn't affected by climate change. You talk to someone in Miami, they're experiencing significant surges from sea level rise. You talk to someone in New York who was there during um, Hurricane Sandy or in, in Houston or even in California where I'm from where the fire season is something that is becoming increasingly dire year after year. So I think it really, it's an equalizer when you realize that we're all humans, we're all experiencing climate change in very different ways, and we're all in this together and we need to be finding solutions together. So at this point, you've attended these key negotiations and conferences on climate change for almost a decade. What would you say usually gets in the way of successful negotiations or meaningful solutions being agreed upon and decided upon? So I think ultimately there's this sense that this idea of whose responsibility is it to act on climate change. And I think this idea of historical responsibility is, is really tricky because if you look today, China is actually the largest emitter in absolute terms here and now today. But if you look historically, if you add up all of the emissions year after year from the Industrial Revolution onwards, then very clearly you recognize that United States and industrialized nations in Europe are the largest emitters just because they've had more time to emit. Mm. And so with that, you realize that, that the countries that are currently industrialized and currently developed have a greater degree of responsibility to help support developing countries kind of leapfrog uh, ahead to provide them with new technology or even financial assistance so that many of the people that are struggling with poverty and may not have access to clean energy can do so through the support of developed countries. But it's, it's really difficult because you also need to acknowledge that there are large developing countries like China and Brazil that are and India that are, are growing very rapidly and also have an important responsibility, which is different than the responsibility of the United States. So I think you end up then devolving into a little bit of a finger pointing mm. in negotiations where some countries are demanding finance, some countries are demanding others to do more, or do their part or do their fair share. Um, and I think that's really what causes these discussions to break down very rapidly. But I think that the solution that was reached in Paris was was one that was, was workable and, and hopefully lasting, which is that every country is required to do their fair share based on what they self-determine. Now, you can imagine that it's the, the risk there is that you get a race to the bottom, that every country is going to just do the least amount that they can get away with. But um, what we're working on right now is to make sure that there's enough pressure in the system, almost like peer pressure or pressure from citizens and pressure from companies to, to kind of push countries to do even better because fundamentally every country doesn't there's there's no kind of enforcement mechanism that forces countries to meet a certain level of emissions reduction so that's why it's really important for citizens to be engaged in these conversations so that countries themselves know that that's what their constituents demand of them other than competing or comparing the emissions of different countries or how countries are doing in terms of implementing climate change policies, how does ongoing competition between nations for power, economic growth, standing in this international community and advancement, how do these things impact our ability to work together on global climate change solutions? 
do these power struggles come into play and affect what gets or what happens at these negotiations? Yes, definitely. And you'll also see that that sometimes conflict or issues along different diplomatic lines will bleed over into the diplomatic discussions on climate change. And it's interesting because you also you have all of these different layers of of discussions. So, for example, there's this whole conversation around response measures, which is uh, kind of the U.N. way of saying that if there are certain countries that are going to lose out if we transition to renewable energy. So you can think of OPEC countries, so oil-producing countries. If we say that we're going to move the world to renewable energy, then all of the countries that are currently producing oil and profiting from that oil, well, their GDPs or their economic opportunities are going to decline. So um, you'll see a lot of negotiation blocks of different countries that are coming together and trying to advocate for their own interests. So the oil-producing countries may not may want to want uh, advocate for some sort of financial compensation if the, the Paris Agreement does move ahead. That's one conversation. You also have conversations like, it's called loss and damage. So countries like the Maldives or countries in the Pacific Islands or those that are incredibly vulnerable to the impacts of climate change are also seeking some sort of compensation from those that are historically responsible for climate change. So um, kind of very much like the legal disputes that we're seeing with children who are taking companies to court or um, certain communities on the coastlines were forced to relocate in Alaska, taking oil companies to court. Very similarly, some of these, these vulnerable countries are, are kind of demanding or, or, or looking for the UN process to provide them with compensation, especially if they're made to or forced to migrate or to move out of their their countries. So you have all of these different themes and these different layers and strands of of negotiation discussions that take place at the at, at the global level that kind of get in the way or you know make it difficult to reach agreement. The the other part of of it, which which relates to what you asked about in terms of trade and and economic opportunities is technology transfer. And a lot of countries that are developing renewable technologies want to maintain the proprietary rights to that. But how do you how do we advance the whole the whole planet or the whole system if we're not sharing technology and if we're not moving more rapidly and more quickly and making sure that those countries that are, are struggling to keep up have access to some of that new technology. So those are some of the discussions that also come into play. So it sounds like just as within the United States, there are corporations that have incentives to maintain the status quo because it's more profitable for them. There are also countries built on economies where they're incentivized to also maintain the status quo rather than transition towards uh, renewable energy, for example. And all of this has to do with countries competing with one another on these measures of power, economy, advancement, and so forth. So how do you think at this time when we need to come together and bring everyone together to work together, how can we get countries to almost transcend their self-interest to think about Earth as a collective rather than these competing elements? Yeah, I, I think that's such a fundamental question. I think part of it is to recognize that acting on climate change doesn't have to come at the expense of economic growth. And it actually is within our self-interest and in our enlightened self-interest to act on climate change. I can just give you an example. When we look at some of these flows of migration, 
um, all around the world and displacement of populations. What we know, and there's quite credible evidence that suggests that the tide of of migration from Central America to the United States, um, a large part of it is driven by unprecedented droughts and crop failures, in particular in co coffee farms, which are very vulnerable to kind of shifts in climate patterns. And so we, we've seen displacement of, of, of large populations also in Africa, uh, in from North Africa to Europe, from the Middle East to Europe. And these migrations have a destabilizing effect on, on countries all around the world. You, you also see connections between the rise of groups like Boko Haram that, that have taken advantage of some of this displacement. Um, so you, you kind of see that, that fundamentally our national security and the security of so many countries around the world are, are so integrally linked with natural resources and the environment. So I would say that there's there's that point is that I think we have to come to that deeper understanding that we cannot con uh, separate climate change or the environment from our well-being and from our future and from the stability of our society. So th uh, I think that's a, a really important point. The second is that I've also seen in the last few years an unprecedented mobilization and movement of citizens and individuals. And I think the movement of youth, the uh, youth climate strikes, the Fridays for, for the Future movement has really kind of taken hold globally. And I think that at this point, citizens are not taking climate inaction. They're not taking no for an answer, right? That there's really this greater sense that climate change is an issue of our survival. It's an issue that'll define future generations, that we have a responsibility to the generations to come to do something about climate change. We're seeing unprecedented movement of shareholders demanding even of oil and gas companies that they set climate change targets. So we're seeing these large tides of movements, not just of champion key leaders around the world, but also of, of people taking action in, in specific and tangible ways that are moving the needle and are shifting the conversation in a substantive way. That's definitely very comforting to know because sometimes it can feel like we're moving really slowly in terms of our progress. But specifically from these conferences you've been to, what major wins have we gotten from this that has really affected the world at large? So in terms of the conferences, um, you know, I think the Paris Agreement itself was a great vote of confidence in the global system, in the United Nations system, in the ability of countries to come together around a common objective. I think that in and of itself was, was really powerful and it sent an important signal to companies and even cities and states and the world really that climate change is, is an important issue of our time. In terms of other types of conferences and commitments. We've also seen sectors come together. So um, I think a really interesting example is the International Civil Aviation Organization. So it's basically the organization that regulates emissions from aviation and from flights, which aren't covered, international flights aren't covered un under any individual country's emissions because they're considered international. And uh, basically, this association agreed to 
carbon neutral growth by 2020, which is, is, is pretty ambitious and it puts a cap on all aviation emissions by 2020. So we're, we're starting to see movement in a number of different places, but in particular different types of sectors that are, are, are coming with specific and concrete actions that are really pushing the industry ahead. Uh, another types of commitments is on um, stopping deforestation. So um, a number of companies have also put forth commitments to stop deforestation. So, you know, you could you could see companies like Kellogg's or Kraft or Walmart that have said that they're going to eliminate deforestation from their entire supply chain, which is also really, really powerful in, in really understanding the, the, the full value chain and how each of our consumption decisions can be traced back to an action that, that fundamentally is causing climate change. I want to shift gears a little bit to talk about your work at Conservation International. So I'm sure a lot of people have already heard about this organization, but in case our listener is hearing about it for the first time, can you briefly share its mission and approach? Sure. So um, I work at an organization called Conservation International, and we have been working to protect the nature that people depend on for the last 30 years. We have offices all around the world. I think the, the most exciting thing about CI from my perspective is that even though I work in Washington, D.C., most of my colleagues are based in our field programs, which are the countries in, in which we work. So our biggest programs are in places like Brazil and Indonesia, the Philippines, South Africa, Kenya. We, we have all, uh, offices in almost every region of the world. And, um, you know, I, I think there was one statistic that really blew my mind when I joined CI that that brought home for me why the work that we do is so important. And that was around the time of the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. And I, I remember reading at that time that the United States uh, GDP actually went up after the oil spill, which blew my mind because uh, you can imagine all of the loss of income to tourism, all of the loss of livelihoods for the fishermen and women that rely on a, a safe and, and healthy ecosystem. But the United States GDP went up because of all of the cleaning crews. What CI works on is really trying to correct that balance between the incentives in our economic system that reward the destruction of nature to kind of even even the scales so that the types of activities that value and the, all of the benefits that nature provides, like tourism, like clean water, like pollination, like biodiversity, are actually in, incorporated and included in the way that we value our economy and our society. And that, that's really fundamentally what we're working on, is to kind of shift this understanding that nature is not separate from people and from our well-being and from our ability to prosper and thrive. Conservation International covers a really wide range of issues from climate change, food, forests, freshwater, our oceans, gender and conservation. And there's a whole list on your website. So there's a lot. And it just shows that we do have a lot of environmental concerns to address today. Is there one or a few common denominators among all of these environmental issues that stand out to you as the root causes of them all? Like, is it the lack of valuing nature, like you mentioned? Is it embedded societal values or something about how we're wired as humans? 
Yeah, I think it's it's that disregard for the value of nature because you know I think when 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 we uh, look at a forest or uh, you, you can look at that forest for all of the benefits it provides, or you can look at it for the financial gain that you can accrue by cutting down the trees and selling the timber and uh, selling that land, using the land for pasture for cattle or using the land to grow crops that you can generate short-term income for. But the problem is that our, our system doesn't actually tell you what you're losing by cutting down those trees, right? That you, you might get some short-term economic gain. And, and I think the problem really is that our economic system, our political system with these short election cycles, our, our financial system in terms of how companies are valued, in terms of how banks lend, all depend on that short-term economic value, which normally comes from the destruction and devaluation of, of nature. And I think that's that's really fundamentally the root of the problem. So a lot of the work that we do at CI is related to innovative financial mechanisms. So um, if there can be some sort of way that payments can be provided to communities for keeping forests intact, or if there's some sort of system to incorporate forests and the value that forests provide into national accounts so that our G GDP accurately reflects the values that, that intact ecosystems are providing, that animals and all of the tourism that they attract provide, then we actually might have a better chance of making decisions that are better for, for the future of the planet and the future of humanity. Right, because if we're measuring the wrong things to begin with in attempt to reflect our life quality and public health, then the, the actions we're taking will also not actually be the things meaningful to improve our health and life quality as well. So we need to be measuring the right things and not just be accounting for the utility of nature, but also the inherent value that it has. Absolutely. Yes. And then actually using that information to make decisions, because the problem is that decisions are made based on that balance sheet that, that an investor or a CEO or a minister of finance has provided, which only shows them one side of that of that equation rather than showing the full picture. So, you know, I think part of it is changing the system, is, is changing the way that we account and measure. And then the second is also education and awareness so that the decision makers are aware that they need to be taking those other factors into account as well. Moving forward, how can we get nations to recalibrate these measurements? Because right now I feel like most countries we're kind of enslaved to economic growth, but again, that's not taking into account the full picture. So how do we replace that with something that more accurately reflects what we are really striving to improve? Yeah, I think there's a number of different entry points. And I think having uh, pressure from citizens is, is so important. I think fundamentally making climate change a voting issue is, is, is so important. The discussions that we're having right now around the Green New Deal are so encouraging and exciting because it actually shows that you can use climate change as a basis for having a, a discussion about how do we fundamentally restructure our economy. And, and so I think one is making it a voting issue and, and, and making it an, an issue that our politicians are forced to discuss and confront and find solutions for uh, and solve for is really uh, one of the steps. The second is that we need more pressure in the system from some of the, the big leading companies and investors, right? So if, if these big asset managers, if pension funds, if sovereign wealth funds 
if these power brokers who are managing financial resources for the planet can really put in place the mechanisms to shift their investments. We've, we've seen global movements for on divestment, for example. If we can actually use the basis or use climate change as the opportunity to change the decision support information that these global funders and global managers of large sources of, of finance and resources are using and, and putting pressure in the system through shareholders and through the actual investors themselves, through through the, the champions and the early movers, I think that that might actually yield enough um, influence for, to get governments to do the same. And one really exciting example of, of a country that's actually done this in practice is Costa Rica. Costa Rica as an entire country has committed to be zero carbon, carbon neutral essentially, by the middle of the century, which is really unthinkable. There isn't another country in the world that's been able to say that they're going to do that. And um, they've done it by putting in place policies that will completely electrify their entire uh, fleet of cars, that'll completely phase out fossil fuels, that'll stop deforestation. And they've actually presented a long-term strategy and plan for this, which is really encouraging and exciting. And if Costa Rica can do it, that means that, that any country can do it, really, Costa Rica being a developing country, right? So, you know, I see a lot of shining examples and a lot of ways that leading individuals, companies, investors, and citizens can actually help create a movement and in a meaningful way. The other thing I find really unique and interesting about Conservation International is that you guys work at every level, from remote villages to the offices of presidents and CEOs and, and more. For you, being at an organization that operates at all levels and across such a wide range of issues, what's something you've connected the dots for from being exposed to this intersectionality that other people may not be able to see or understand? Yeah, I think a really cool example is we're working on carbon pricing and carbon taxes in Colombia, for example. So it's really um, quite progressive what they've done in Colombia. They've implemented a nationwide carbon tax. And the way it works is that a company can reduce their tax liability by investing in a solution. So if um, a company invests in a sustainable forest or a protected area to stop deforestation, they actually can reduce their tax liability. And it's a great way to kind of get uh, an injection of resources and opportunity for an undervalued and underfunded solution to climate change. We know that that nature is uh, at least a third of the solution to climate change because cutting down forests emits a lot of carbon. And so by creating this financial incentive at the national level in Colombia, it's created a, a flow of funding to local communities to provide them with the financial resources that they need to generate income and maintain their, their livelihoods while not cutting down the forest. Mm -hmm. And this this project or also has kind of shows how the local connects to the national, but also what we're looking at is how does this national connect to the global? So if Colombia wants to cooperate or work with other countries on trading emissions credits between Colombia and a country in Europe, for example, we're also working on the rules at the international level to kind of enable that. Because imagine if you could multiply, triple, quadruple the amount of finance that's going into Colombia for these types of projects 
through international cooperation, that could actually create another financial incentive to scale up the projects on the ground. So I think it's it's really exciting because we get to really see what are the, the levers that can move the needle on at the community level, kind of what are the incentives, what are the ways that these projects need to be structured to lead to lasting change in the long term, but then also how do you make sure that they're supported by really good policy at the national level and at the international level. Mm, so really by getting to work with people, company and organizations and political leaders at all these different le- levels, you're able to come up with solutions that as best as possible take everyone into account and benefit everybody. And you're also able to foster collaboration between the players as well. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's the best part about my job is really being able to see how all of these different levels and scales connect and recognizing that you know we, we need both grassroots, grass tops, top-down, bottom-up strategies, and it's not necessarily an either-or. We need an active and engaged base of citizens and communities and individuals, but we also need to see leadership at the national level and that there's really also an opportunity for a global movement. And I think it's really all of the above. Climate change is really something that requires and enables actions action at all scales. The last thing I want to touch on is the number 422. So when we think about this number, we may immediately think about Earth Day, which just passed recently, April 22nd. But just as importantly, this number represents something else, 422 parts per million. What does this mean and what do we need to know about this figure? Yeah, so back in the 1970s, um, the parts per million, which is essentially the concentration of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere, and you can imagine parts per million, that's pretty small because CO2 isn't the um, most abundant gas in our atmosphere, it's actually nitrogen. But the amount of CO2 that we're putting in the atmosphere is is growing rapidly. In the 1970s, it was, it was 325 parts per million. Um, the scientific community has broadly agreed that 350 parts per million is kind of where the concentration of CO2 needs to be to ensure that uh, climate stability and to kind of maintain our chances of, of avoiding catastrophic impacts of climate change and, and kind of reaching those tipping points where um, we reach almost this hothouse earth effect. And so um, unfortunately, what we've seen over the last few years is the concentration kind of incrementally rising, where we're kind of approaching, we're already in the in the 410s and, and uh, on track to be reaching that 422 number, which is, is quite alarming, because it's, it's the opposite of what we need to be seeing. We need to be seeing a decline closer down towards 350. And and in order to give us a chance of of, um, reaching net zero emissions by 2050, which is which is really um, also where we need to be. Mm. And so I think the recognition of that of that number is really an appeal and kind of a a warning signal um, of, of, of specifically what we're experiencing and seeing in the atmosphere um, and the shifts that are going to be needed to kind of correct that trend that we're on. And when you envision the near future, hopefully when this number is starting to decline for us, what does that future look like? And what do you think we need most to be able to make that a reality? Yeah, I think I looking at the future, I could imagine it being a, a more, um, I, I guess, 
a more prosperous, a more equal, a more fair and just society where there's clean energy, where our, our pollution levels are going down. Um, I mentioned I'm originally from India. Every time I go back to Delhi, I'm struck by the incredible amount of pollution there that seems to be getting worse year after year um, and the incredible amount of pressure on and demands on the, the population there um, to grow rapidly but not able to do so um, through renewable and clean energy. But what I would envision is to see clear skies in places like New Delhi, mm. where uh, that we've been able to lift people out of poverty and provide them with clean energy. We've been able to experience exponential gains in, in, in the capacity and the amount of renewable and clean energy that we're producing that we've been able to um, maintain our levels of agricultural production without clearing more forest. And we know all of these things are technically possible. We know that we can feed even a growing population with all of the land that we have today. Um, we just have to be smarter and more efficient about it. We have to be putting the incentives in the right place. Uh, you know, I think we need to be decarbonizing our economy, but what we need right now is we need people talking about climate change more. I know it's scary and I think that the it, it's such a daunting problem where you know it's very difficult to see how climate change is something that's going to affect you today or tomorrow like a, a topic like the economy or, or jobs or healthcare. but I think we need to recognize that climate change is an issue of today it's something that we need to be engaged in it's something that we need to be talking to each other about even if we don't know what the answer or what the solution is, let's talk about it because that's really the only way that we recognize we, we're kind of uh, activating our creativity, we're activating our innovation, and we're making it clear to our leaders, to our CEOs, and those that are managing our financial resources that this is important to us and that we may not have all of the answers, but we need to start thinking big and we need to start working together um, on the solutions. Before we go into our final five, I wanted to tell you more about our sponsor. Buffy's new comforter, The Breeze, is 100% plant-based and cruelty-free, which means no down, no polyester, but made entirely from eucalyptus fiber, which helps us to stay cozy without overheating. It's softer than cotton, hypoallergenic, and eucalyptus uses 10 times less water than cotton to grow. And the best part is that you can try one in your own bed for free. If you don't love it, you can return it at no cost. For $20 off your Buffy comforter, visit Visit Buffy.co and enter your discount code GreenDreamer. Again, that's B-U-F-F-Y C-O and GreenDreamer for $20 off. For now to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow? I love Grist. I think Grist is a great curation of of leading environmental news. I also love um, Yale Environment 360. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? You know, I, I try to be incredibly hopeful and optimistic. I tell myself that even though there's more um, dire news coming out every day, that it really just takes one person changing their mind to create a global movement. And we saw that with Greta Thunberg in, in Europe. And it's, it's those examples that keep me going day to day. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Well, I uh, became vegetarian about 10 years ago, and I'm, I'm trying to eat more legumes and um, try to keep more plant-based protein um, in my diet. What's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably? 
Um, I'm trying to stop online shopping. <laughs> it's been really difficult, but I'm, I'm trying to really limit the amount that I shop and the and in particular the amount that I shop online and where possible try to go to a brick and mortar store down the street rather than ordering it from um, the comfort of my couch. What makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? I think it's nature. Nature is 30% of the solution to climate change. We don't need a new technology. We don't need research and development. Um, we have trees. We have soils. We have our nature right here and right now. We just need to stop cutting our trees down and we'll have a third, almost a third of the solution to climate change. And that keeps me incredibly hopeful. Well, thank you so much for this insightful conversation. We would, of course, love to keep learning from you and supporting CI. So where can we follow and support your work online? Conservation.org slash climate. And there's a bunch of information about our climate program there, but also about programs that we have on oceans and, and of course, all of the great field work that we do. And finally, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? We need more green dreamers. We need more young people. We need women. I, I think it's really all hands on deck. And I think that this is really a universal movement for all of us to come together. And I really look forward to working with all of you and um, would love to continue the conversation. This is a universal movement. So let's bring people together and continue this conversation. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. We now have over 140 episodes on Green Dreamer. And if you're enjoying the podcast and it's been meaningful and helpful to you in any way, I really hope you'll consider supporting the show if you're able to by becoming a patron. And also if you'd like to connect with our over 60 Green Dreamers now in our network, it'll really help us be able to continue publishing two episodes per week, always for free as a public resource. So thank you so much for your consideration. To learn more, you can head to Green dreamer.com slash support if you want to support us in other ways you can also share the show on social media with friends who may also enjoy the podcast or writing a hopefully five-star review sharing your takeaways or what you're enjoying about the show and regardless thank you again for being here and for all that you do and stand for finally as we're wrapping up just remember now more than ever our planet needs your light to thrive so if you haven't yet hit subscribe and i will catch you later green dreamer